Well, good morning, Mercy Hill. Uh, Nick here. I'm the lead pastor, and I'm happy to be bringing you God's word uh, once again. Um, one thing that I wanted to actually address before I got into the sermon for this morning, um, I think all of us are probably aware of the stuff that's happening uh, now, not just in the news with the coronavirus, but in the news uh, regarding the rioting and the uh, injustice and violence and potential racism and other things. And um, without taking too much time on this, I, I, I thought, and I wrote something, I wasn't sure if I was just going to kind of uh, speak around it and talk to you about it, or if I was just maybe going to read it. And I decided I'm just going to read it for the sake of time, uh, and then I'd like to actually pray uh, for those affected by some of these various things, and then uh, we'll dive into our message for this morning. But let me uh, read this to you. It's become evident this week um, once more, that we are clearly dealing with two viruses these days, are we not? One outside us, COVID-19 and this pandemic, and one inside us, sin manifesting itself in prejudice, racism, hatred, violence, and justice. One attacks our bodies, the other attacks our hearts. In either case, it is the gospel that is the solution. The death and resurrection of Jesus holds the answer. With regard to the body, we know that one day soon, Jesus will do away with sickness and death, and we shall rise in him never to die again. With regard to the heart, we know that only Jesus can unearth the stone in our chests and replace it with a heart like his, soft, broad, and brimming with love. Mercy Hill, in Jesus we have the solution, we have the answer. Far be it from us then to ever add to the problem. Lord, forgive us. Let us rather bring the gospel and its message of resurrection and reconciliation to all who find themselves hurting and hopeless in these trying times. So I'd like to just pray for a moment, if you would, with me. God, we're seeing... Two viruses run amok. We're seeing the coronavirus and all of its effects, and we're seeing sin expressing itself in all manner of, of, of evil these days. God, I pray for those that find themselves particularly affected by the first, uh, whether their job is on the line or their health is on the line, or um, God, their their finances, or whatever it may be, relationships are strained. We pray for them. We pray that right now you would minister your grace to them. You'd give them the hope of the gospel. And God, we pray for those affected particularly by the second, those that are uh, uh, maybe feeling um, scared uh, by and threatened even by the very uh, people that uh, should be appointed by you to keep them safe. Um, God, we see things in the news and uh, we grow furious and angry ourselves and want to see justice done. And so I pray that you'd remind us uh, that you are a just judge and that you have uh, thrown our sin upon your son and call men to repent and can bring reconciliation and new life and new hearts, but that if people remain unrepentant and in their wickedness, that you will bring justice 
even in your judging of them. One way or the other, you will make all the wrong right. And so, God, I pray that you'd start by doing that in our own hearts. Uh, that we would find our, our own uh, wickedness, um, our own sin sickness being healed. And we would be agents of peace and love in this time of unrest. And I pray for my brothers and sisters that, that maybe feel particularly vulnerable or exposed in this time. Would you comfort them, protect them? Be with them, God. Let them know that you're a shelter and a refuge and a strong tower. Heal our land and heal our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, okay, now we are going to dive into uh, this morning's message. And really, there are a few things I need to do to kind of catch us up to speed. Do you remember we're going through our Do Not Be Afraid series, kind of kicked off because of the whole pandemic thing. And uh, we've been kind of touching on different texts along the way where uh, God comes and comforts his people or calls his people to not be afraid. And uh, the last text we were looking at was Acts 27. And I said I'd probably wrap around this week and do a part two on that. And that's exactly what we are about to do. So this is the second part of a message I began last week entitled, Do Not Be Afraid, God Will Fulfill His Purpose for You. Um, Acts 27 essentially records kind of this travel narrative where uh, Paul the Apostle is, is journeying by ship from Caesarea to Rome. Now, I um, thought it best not to read the whole chapter again like I did last week. It was a long, uh, probably the longest amount of Bible text I've ever read uh, before a sermon. Um, but I'm just going to kind of sum some of that up here uh, for us to kind of get us back in. And, and then we will actually read a small section within the, the chapter that kind of highlights and brings out that which I want to be focusing on with you this morning. So just kind of summary for us, bringing out some of the main pieces. You need to remember a few things. One, uh, Paul is kind of, he's kind of just closed up his third missionary journey. Um, and it ended there uh, rather abruptly in Jerusalem because the people um, uh, of the city there were not pleased with what he had to say, did not want to hear anything more about this Jesus who had risen from the dead. And so they're ready to kill him. And when the Romans hear the, uh, of the unrest and the violence and all of this surrounding Paul, they actually grab Paul, throw him in uh, prison uh, to kind of keep him safe, but also to start to interrogate and figure out what is he doing that is so wrong. So he's, you know, he's got his own countrymen now that want to kill him. The, the Romans have him imprisoned. They move him from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And uh, by Acts 27, we're told that he'd been kind of imprisoned there in Caesarea for more than two years at this point. And it finally kind of reaches this place where Paul appeals his case to Caesar. He, 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 in essence, wants to get to Rome. And as a Roman citizen, he has the right to say, hey, listen, I want my case to go before Caesar in Rome. And Paul's goal here is not just to get acquitted, like I said last week. It's actually because he wants to bring the gospel uh, into the really what would have been the epicenter uh, of, of, of modern day kind of culture and things in his day. 
So the opening verses of um, chapter 27 then actually start to record how Paul, um, along with other prisoners, sailors, soldiers, start to make their journey uh, from Caesarea to Rome. It's happening, he's on his way, and they're gonna kind of voyage by ship along the, the Mediterranean coastline. They're stopping in various port cities and things along the way. But in the opening verses of our um, chapter, what we come to see is that the wind and weather uh, and the waves and all this immediately kind of uh, turn on uh, this journey and these people and their ship. And we find that um, things go bleak rather quickly. It, it looks to all on board as if uh, not only are they not going to make the journey, but they're not going to make it out alive. Um, so we come to that, that kind of desperate uh, 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 description here in verse 20 where we read this. Luke kind of records this for us. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So we just gave up hope. We thought it's not going to happen. We are going to die out here. But now we're going to pick it up actually in verse 21. This is kind of where I want to read a little section in here, uh, verse 21 down to verse 32. So if you have a Bible, you can open it, Acts 27. Verse 21 is where we're going to begin. Um, but it starts with this strange word of hope that Paul delivers to the people on board this ship, even with the wind howling all around them, even with the waves still crashing on the sides and lapping up into the boat. Here's what we read. Let me read this text. I'll pray, and then we'll really get moving um, for this morning. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down the four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship. You cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. 
And then we remember how the story ends through many twists and turns, ups and downs. The people are preserved. And the last verse of the chapter, if you want to drop your eyes down to verse 44, reads this way. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Let's pray. God, we right now need to hear a word from your mouth, from your heart. And more than even that, we need to know how stable and secure and firm that word truly is. We admit on the surface of this text, it looks like there may be some variation and some shifting shadow in you, as if you can say one thing and then wrap around and say the other. As if your promises and your plan is vulnerable and shaky and unsure. God, I pray that through the course of our time this morning, you really would bring us to see just how secure we are in you. How sure your promise is. How safe we are in Jesus. Use me, God, to speak. Let me be your instrument. Open all of our ears to hear what the Holy Spirit would say to his church. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so there are just two things really on the agenda for this morning. Um, we're going to look at first a growing tension, and then second, an attempted resolution. A growing tension and an attempted, by me, <laughs> resolution. Uh, I realize at first you may or may not have any clue what I'm referring to uh, with this, but let me at least say this before we begin. There is a tension in this text, and I'm gonna try to bring it out. I want you to see it, I want you to feel it, I want you to be even a little bit troubled by it, as I have been. I'm gonna try to wind this tension up tight so that you just can't miss it. And then, my hope is to try to bring some relief to it, to biblically and gloriously uh, bring some resolution to the tensions that we see here because I, I, I believe that through that we can actually come to uh, a place of having even greater assurance, rest, and stability. My sense is that there's probably a lot of us right now who feel like our lives are just straight up sinking ships. We look at Acts 27 and say, metaphorically, that is me. The ship is going down. And it's been my prayer that uh, through the course of this sermon, by the time we're done, you'll kind of look down and realize, man, my goodness, my feet are on solid ground. There is bedrock for the believer here. I want you, I want myself to be standing on that. So, 
First, a growing tension. Let me make sure that you first even see the tension at all. Some of you, it may be leapt right out of the page. Others, uh, you again might not have a sense of what I'm talking about yet. So let me make sure we see the tension, that it's clear. First, uh, Paul is uh, addressing uh, this hopeless crowd of men, right? Uh, after verse 20, they're saying, we're going to die. Uh, verse 21 comes in with this incredible, almost unbelievable promise. Uh, and he, he says this, verse, uh, I guess it's 22, there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. They're thinking we're going to die. He says there's not going to be uh, death for anyone here. It's not in the cards. No loss of life for you. And everyone on the ship, probably naturally, as they looked out and saw the waves still raging the, and the wind still howling, said, man, how can you be so bold? How can you even be so naive or ignorant? Where does this uh, uh, crazy confidence come from, Paul? Well, he goes on to say how he can know such a thing, that there will be no loss of life. You see, he grounds his prediction, actually, in the very promise and plan of God. Verse 23, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So this is not just Paul wishful thinking. This is something an angel of God came and told him in the midst of the storm. Listen, you must, Paul, get to Rome. It's going to happen. And guess what? Just kind of as a, as, a, as a parting gift, as kind of a throw in, I'll give you all the sailors and soldiers and people aboard this ship as well. They're going to get there safely too. So he's rooting this in the promise and the plan of God. Therefore, he can speak and, 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 and issue this prediction, or perhaps even more strongly, a, a prophetic word. No one's going to die. And this is why in verse 25, he comes out confidently again and says, So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Exactly. You don't need to be afraid. You can take heart because God has given us a promise according to his plan and it will be exactly as he has said it will be. It's gonna come to pass. And then, as the days and the nights go on, as the tempest shows no sign of slackening, when it seems at last that they are going to wreck on the rocks, the sailors on board the ship cook up a plan and decide, listen, we are going to try to save ourselves at the expense of everyone else. So they kind of uh, under kind of uh, uh, under uh, kind of pretending to be going and, and dropping the anchors uh, off the bow. They instead are actually lowering the ship's lifeboat into the water and they're about to make a run for it to shore. They're aware this thing is going to crash. We're not going to make it, but we're going to save our own skin. Let's get in that lifeboat. Well, Paul, maybe perhaps by uh, some sort of inspiration of the Holy Spirit, catches wind of this plan and, and sounds the alarm, as it were. He tells the centurion, he tells the, the soldiers remaining on the ship there in verse 31. Now hear this. Unless these men stay in the ship 
you cannot be saved. If the sailors head out into the water now, everyone will be dead in the water soon. (laughs) To which I say, and you probably say, come again, Paul? I mean, what kind of double-handed, two-faced sort of stuff is this? In verses 22 through 25, you said, there would be no loss of life, and it will be exactly as my God has said. And then here you are, just a few verses later, backtracking on all of that. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And I just want to say, which is it, Paul? Which is it? Are they going to be saved or are they going to die? Are the people on the ship going to make it to shore or are they going to go belly up in the sea? Is God going to be true to his prophetic word and promise or is everything up in the air and subject to the whim and will of man? Now, you may recall I I used this story last week to bring out the reassuring truth that uh, is captured really in the title of these sermons, namely that we do not need to be afraid because God will fulfill his purpose for us. He's going to fulfill his purpose for us. And I was drawing all that out of this text. And now what we come to find out is, my goodness, really? Is that what we see here or not? Is there assurance here or not? But, but really what I was doing last week, I mean, is that not what we see? The, the angel kind of, uh, when he comes to, to Paul, it says, listen, don't be afraid. Well, why should I not be afraid? You must go to Rome. I, I've got a plan for you. I've got a purpose for you. And I'm gonna fulfill that purpose for you. So don't be afraid. You're gonna go to Rome. You have to go to Rome. It's the decree of your father, of almighty God. That's a big part of God's purpose for you. It must be. And I I used words like destiny to describe this for us. And I said, listen, it's not just for Paul here, but using texts like Ephesians 2.10, I think God is gonna help kind of fulfill his purpose even for you and I. And therefore, from all of that, the point was, we don't need to be afraid. Whatever's going on, God is on the move for good for, with us in it, and he's going to fulfill what he's called us to. But here, we come to our text, and we look a little closely, look a little more closely, and all of a sudden, what we see is that it seems like God is using this word must rather loosely. You must go to Rome, Paul. I'm going to fulfill my good purpose for you. And therefore, all these guys are also going to be thrown in on the deal. And and they're going to be saved as well. But then all of a sudden, it's like he just kind of backtracks. And, oh, actually, if those sailors jump, man, let me take that back. You're all going to die. The tension gets even more pronounced um, when we consider all that's been said of Paul up to this point. Um, And for this, I'm just going to kind of go back to some of the the, the stuff God has already said about Paul's life and his plans to get him to Rome and all of this and and just show you, man, I'm trying to wind this tension up tight so we really feel it. When when, when Paul says, listen, if, if, if these sailors go, we all go. Uh, we all go down. 
In other words, I, I wanna know what is going on with all these things that God promises and can we trust them still? How do we make sense of it? So, so what we need to understand with regard to Paul is that really what the angel has come and, and said to Paul here uh, in, in the middle of the night, the middle of the storm on this ship is actually really just kind of the crowning word atop a whole um, structure of promises and prophecies that have been made about him throughout his life. And so what we, what we realize, hey, let me just show you some of these. Uh, the angel is just kind of reiterating what in Acts 23, 11, Jesus himself already said. So in Acts 23, Paul is there in Jerusalem and he's in kind of the Roman barracks. He's imprisoned. Remember, the, the Jews there wanted to kill him. They were not pleased with what he was doing. So he was no doubt a little bit scared, a little bit discouraged. And then we read something marvelous in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. It's gonna happen. Take courage. An angel of God has said it, and here now we see Jesus has said it. But we can keep going back, back a little further. And we realize in Acts 19.21 that there's yet another divine witness to this plan of God for Paul. You can add to the angel and the son the Holy Spirit now. For as we read this, verse 21, Acts 19. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. I must. The angel said it. Jesus said it. Holy Spirit saying it. And really what we come to understand is that all this business about Rome is, is really just kind of a fleshing and flowering out of the very purpose Jesus says he's laid hold of Paul for in the first place. I don't know how many of you remember Paul's conversion, but he was essentially kind of running antithetical to Christ. Uh, he actually thought it was his God-given calling and duty not to advance the church, but to crush it, to, 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 to quench it, to, to step on it and, and see it uh, dissipate, to watch it go. He was a persecutor of the church, not a proponent of it. And he's on the road to Damascus uh, going to do more of just that when suddenly Jesus appears to him, stops him in his tracks, as it were, puts him on another path. And he speaks about what this path will entail. He kind of spells it out this way uh, when he talks about it to, um, to uh, a guy by, I can't remember his name, honestly. I think it was by, a guy by the name of Ananias. He's speaking to him about Paul, and he says, Acts 9, 15, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings. Did you hear that? And the children of Israel. So we learn later, oh, okay, Gentiles and kings involve Caesar and Rome. But in the beginning, it's, listen, I have set my hands on him. He is a chosen instrument of mine. I have appointed him for this purpose. 
This is why Paul would say in Galatians 1:15 and 16, which we looked at last week, God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Why did God set me apart from my mother's womb? Why did he call me by his grace? So that I would preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And, and perhaps uh, uppermost in God's mind was, man, I want to get the gospel all the way to Rome. I want, Paul, you to go to the Gentiles there in Rome and preach the gospel among them. Jesus has said it. Holy Spirit said it. Angel of God has said it. This is the purpose of God for Paul, set in motion by sovereign grace before he was even born. And now I want to ask here in Acts 27, is all of this, excuse me, is all of this suddenly thrown into jeopardy? Is all of this somehow now at risk of just aborting? Because a few sailors decide to abandon ship a little prematurely. Let me force the matter upon us as pointedly as I can by putting it like this. If a few renegade sailors can upend the plans and purposes of Almighty God, then you and I, brothers and sisters, are helplessly imperiled. If a few renegade sailors can upend the plans and purposes of Almighty God, we are helplessly imperiled. There is no hope. There is no assurance. There is no solid ground. There is no bedrock. These sermons are a sham, and you and I have every reason to be afraid. Because though God may have said yesterday, oh, you must get to Rome and, and, and you all will make it alive, he may very well, if a few things don't go right or a few people don't do what they ought to do and decide something different, he may retract that very same word tomorrow. And so the ground is shaky. The plan of God seems fragile. These sermons would be cause for laughter, not rejoicing. Do you feel the weight of this? Do you catch what's on the line here? I hope you do, and now in what time I have left, I wanna try to relieve a bit of this tension, try to make sense of it as best as I can, because it's there, it's right on the face of the text. And everything hangs on, on what this means. So we see then the, the building tension, the growing tension. Now we come to an attempted resolution, an attempted resolution. Um, the first thing, and I'll, I'll try to touch on this just quickly here, but the first thing that we invariably need to say whenever we come to kind of discuss matters like this one that deal with the sovereign will of God and the, the free and responsible will of man uh, is that really in many ways it, it, the subject matter is always going to elude us. 
It's always going to surpass our intellectual abilities and capacities. There's always going to be elements of mystery, uh, elements of incomprehensibility. We're always going to find ourselves scratching our head going, I'm not quite sure how it all fits together. And really, when we think about it, this uh, sort of mystery subsists uh, uh, rationally uh, by virtue of the fact that we are creature and he is creator. There is this massive, infinite, we may even say, cognitive uh, uh, and ontological or essential difference between God and us. Forgive me for that big theological word. I'm sure nobody has any idea what I'm talking about. I don't know why that came out. Years of seminary, I guess, will do that to you. But in the same way that your dog as, as cute and fluffy as he may be, uh, cannot in any way possibly comprehend the complexities of human life and conception and thought and activity in the same way man cannot get anywhere near close to wrapping his or her mind around God, the ways, the will, the workings of God. Um, at the end of the day, there's always gonna be a great deal of mystery and my hope really is that um, the mystery that subsists doesn't have to lead us to despair it can actually lead us and should lead us to doxology it should lead us to this place of worship of a God who is beyond us we don't worship a God made in our image right uh, we worship God far above us and transcendent. So Paul, after discussing this interplay between the, the free and responsible will of man and the sovereign will of God, elevates to doxology in Romans eleven thirty three through 36 and says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I wonder if you caught it. He just says, listen, I can't possibly know all there is to know about you, but I can worship you even for that very fact. Doxology in many ways is the end point of our discussion and I bring it here because in a sense I want it to be the starting point as well. That when we kind of look at how does all this work, did the sailors and their will clash with God and his will and make things go, what we need to first understand is that we're not fully going to be able to understand. And we come and we bow before God and it's actually in that posture of humility that we do our best thinking. That's why the author of Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord, getting low before God, is actually the beginning of wisdom. It's how we start to make sense of things, and that's kind of where I'm gonna go now, because uh, though there is some incomprehensibility and some mystery to all of this, uh, I don't think that excuses us from thinking deeply about it. 
I think we still ought to do our, our, our biblical best to try to make sense of this. God has revealed it. He's entrusted this revelation to us. What does he mean by it? It sure seems like a big deal if he can say one thing, wrap around, and take it back in the next moment. I need to know what is going on here as best as I can. So this mystery piece doesn't mean we don't try our best to understand. It does mean that we hold whatever conclusions we come to loosely and humbly, which is why, therefore, I call this my attempt at a resolution. Emphasis on that word attempt. I don't think I have all the answers. I'm just doing my best and you are allowed by uh, influence of the word and spirit to disagree. But we ought to try our best to see if we can't understand a bit more of how God is working in this text and in our own lives. Okay, so... The issue at hand, just to make sure we're clear on it and allow me to restate it here, is simply this. Um, Can man, with his own will, somehow thwart or overpower God and his? In our text, uh, did God promise and even prophesy one thing that could truly be upended by a few sailors a few days later? Is the plan of God really that fragile? Is all that, Paul, or all that God said about Paul through the years, laying a hold of him, even from his mother's womb, I have a plan and a purpose, is all of that in jeopardy because of a few renegade sailors? If not, then here's the other thing that we need to understand. If, if it's not true that all of that is in jeopardy and the plan of God is that fragile, then how are we to understand verse 31? Is it a farce? Is the warning just kind of a, 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 a mocking, not real, God just kind of speaking out of the corner of his mouth, but he knows he's not really gonna do it. It's an empty sort of a thread. It's, is that what it is? It's just a play? Does God mean what he says? Or perhaps to take it even further, does human choice even matter at all? Does God even care what we do? Is he just going to accomplish his will anyways? You see all the knots that kind of wrap around one another need untying in this issue that are brought up as we uh, discuss these sorts of things and come to these verses in Scripture. Now, it seems to me that there really are two extremes we're trying to avoid here. Um, On the one hand, uh, we do not want to say that God fulfilling his purpose for us means my choices and actions don't matter. Like, hey, if God is just gonna kind of fulfill his will and his plan and all this, then it doesn't matter what I do. I could grab a hold of a promise and then live like the devil. He's gonna do whatever he wants. He'll get me to glory or whatever it is. I can just live in sin or I can go off here or there. Why does it matter? Why should I evangelize? Why should I live in earnest for God if he's just gonna accomplish it anyways? His will is gonna be done. I think our text pushes back on that with the idea of these sailors. I don't think we're supposed to understand that Paul or God are bluffing here. I think they mean it, that if these sailors abandon the ship, everyone will die. Human choice and actions matter. Those sailors, understandably so, are are probably the the, the means, the the way that God is going to get his people from the storm at sea to the shore. They're the only ones who know how to navigate. 
If they go, understandably so, the ship goes down with them. So human choice, from our text at least, would seem to matter. Human decision and will would seem to matter. But on the other hand, we simply cannot go on to say uh, with this that uh, the other extreme would be the dead. Everything uh, that God um, has said of Paul up to this point is now in jeopardy. We can't go so far with the will of man being important that we actually have it trump the will of God. We can't have uh, these sailors truly threatening the prophecies and plan of God. It doesn't make sense and it doesn't accord with so much that we read of the Bible. Say, take a text like Ephesians 1.11. Paul puts it emphatically there. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. I checked in the Greek. Taponta means all things. All things working according to the counsel of his will. Acts 27 verse 31 does not somehow undermine this fundamental reality. So how then do the two hold together? God's will, man's will. How does this work so that the plan and promises of God still stand? even though the warnings and threats are real and our choices and actions matter. Well, I'll tell you in what time remains what I think. Give a few biblical examples of it and then uh, draw things to a close. Obviously, I can't do justice to this subject in a few minutes, but I will try. Um, My sense of it, is, is simply this, that while the warnings and threats are real um, in our text and in other texts, they are actually part of the means whereby God keeps things moving forward according to his plan and promise. They're actually part of the means. The warnings are, ironically, to some degree, part of the way God actually pushes his plan forward. They serve as spurs, if you will, put to the back of his people, keeping them along the narrow way. So if we consider Acts 27 again in particular, he uses the warnings as a means of fulfillment. Like, what happens there? Everyone on the boat is saved, and Paul does go to Rome, just as he said, and the threat here is part of the way God ensures that it is so. He holds the people in line. It wrangles the the, the rebellious wills of these folks. It awakens them to danger and moves them to action. That's what we see happen. The soldiers cut away the ropes, and the lifeboat goes, so the sailors stay in the boat, and hence, verse 44, all were brought safe flee to land exactly as God had said it would be. Now, let me quickly show you a few other examples from Scripture to try to help you catch this dynamic in action, uh, make more sense of it, uh, hopefully uh, get you to see why this is how I at least interpret uh, these texts when I come to them in Scripture. 
Um, first example, and I'll try to give three if I have time. Example number one, uh, first thing I really thought of when I was trying to uh, consider the Bible and certain texts that might relay this clearly to you, the first one I thought of was the Exodus 32. Uh, I wonder if you remember the story. It's God's dealing with Moses. Uh, Moses is up on Mount Sinai at this time. Israel is down below. Uh, they're getting a little bit uh, wary of waiting for Moses, and uh, so they decide, hey, let's build, you know, let's construct this golden calf let's bow down, worship that, kind of like they did in Egypt. We've got our idol, our God now. Forget Yahweh and Moses. We don't know what be- what's become of them anyways. Now, God, who knows everything and understands that they are down there doing this, and he interestingly kind of engages this dialogue with Moses, where he kind of lets Moses in on something he's just kind of stewing on or kind of something that's simmering in the back of his mind, as it were. And he tells Moses, hey, listen, uh, Mo, I, I don't know if you called him, but probably, you know, they have, they're on a first name basis. Uh, listen, Mo, um, I have, am growing weary of, of these people that I brought out from Egypt. I'm already tired of their whining. I'm already tired of their idolatry. They're down there and they're doing it again. I have a uh, better idea. Let's just, let's just do away with them. Let me just kind of zap them in my wrath here. Let's just take them out and let me start a new people from you. Let me start a new nation from you. Now, why does he do this? Why is he talking like this with Moses, these sorts of threats and warnings, as you were, of judgment and, and, and things? Uh, remember, to this point, uh, he's made covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's made a lot of promises. He's spoken about the plans he has for them. Are they all of a sudden in jeopardy? What is happening here? Is he just going to scrap all of that? I don't think so. I think what we come to realize is that he's using these threats to form and shape Moses and actually kind of push his plan further along. What he's actually doing here is bringing Moses deeper into his heart and the role of mediator and intercessor. Moses is starting to catch that even more fully. and In a sense, it becomes kind of a type and a shadow of Christ as Moses stands in the gap for God's people, just like Jesus will do. But so Moses hears this plan from Yahweh, and he, he cries back, listen, God, you can't do that. You can't do that. What about your name? What about your glory? What about your honor? What will the nations say when they look in and realize, man, their God is a liar. He said these things, but he backed up on them. Or, or what, are, what, is, what are the people in Egypt going to say when, when they realize, man, he took them out to the wilderness to kill them. God, you're going to look cruel. You're going to look untrue to yourself. Your glory's at stake. And so he goes on in verse 13 of Exodus 32 and says this, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. He says, remember who you are, what you've said, what you said you'll do, what your plan is for us, what you've promised your people, and don't go back on it. To which I would almost imagine kind of a little smile in God's, 
saw you on the side of God's face at that point. He's like, you, you get it. You get it. You see, the warnings and the threats are being used by God to actually spur his people deeper into his heart and move his plan forward. Moses is, this, Moses is, is praying more fervently and remembering more scripture, if you will, in that moment than perhaps any moment before. And that's what God uses these warnings and things to do, is actually, to f- they're part of the means by which he fulfills his plan, fulfills his promise. Ironically, the warnings and threats are part of the means by which God goes about fulfilling his plans for Israel. I wish I could linger there, I can't. Let me give you a second example, and we kind of move to the New Testament now. Um, this second example, uh, I'm sure this one probably hits close to home for a number of us. Uh, I know that a lot of us probably have been greatly encouraged through the years by Romans 8 and all the promises that we see there, um, the, the, not the least of which comes to us in verses 29 through 30. This little section is often called the golden chain of salvation. Let me read it to you, Romans 8, 29 and 30. Paul writes this, those whom he foreknew, speaking of God and and us, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see why they call it a golden chain. There's these sort of links that are established here, uh, this unbroken kind of chain that proceeds from God's foreknowledge, his predestination, his calling, his justification, and his glorification. We kind of see how, man, God is going to do all of this for us, and it's all intricately kind of woven together, and there are no breaks in the chain. And the way that we know that is because of the way he speaks of glorification. In Paul's theological system, to be glorified is actually a future thing. That's what's going to happen to us in the new heavens and the new earth when we get new bodies and we're conformed to his body of glory and all of this. But here in our text, Paul, as he's, as he's kind of forging this chain, puts the glorification piece also in the past tense. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense, future reality as good as done for those who are in Jesus. He fulfills his purpose and plans for his people. But we keep reading in the epistle and we come just a few chapters later to Romans 11 where Paul essentially says this, and it would seem similar to what we saw happen in the boat in the middle of the Mediterranean there. Now we see it happening in this epistle. Paul uh, seems to be saying to the saints, listen, though you are grafted into the people of God through Christ now, don't become haughty lest my God cut you off. You better remain in his kindness or you will know his severity. That's verses 17 through 22, essentially, of Romans 11. If you don't remain in his kindness, if you don't remain humble and grateful and whatever else, then he will cut you off and it'll be over. And you look at that and you go, well, Paul, again, which is it? 
I mean, am I eternally and invincibly secure and as good as glorified already today? Or am I in jeopardy and I could lose what God has begun at any moment if I get a little haughty or I, or I lose my sense of God's kindness or whatever it may be? Well, if I'm understanding the way God uses these warnings correctly, then those who truly are his children will be awakened by them, moved by them to repentance and humility, driven by them actually back to the promises of Romans 8, just like Moses was. You said this, make good on this. They'll be driven by these warnings back to the promises and the grace of Christ. They'll be driven deeper in, perhaps unbeknownst to them, to the heart of God. And in that, ironically, God's plan for them and his securing of them will be uh, fulfilled. I hope you're seeing. It's hard to know through the screen, right, through the camera, if anybody's catching what I'm saying or not. I know this is more kind of deeper on the theological uh, deep end of things, but, but I hope that you're finding it helpful. Because if you do read your Bible, and you should, and you read it carefully, and you should, you're gonna have these questions, and you need to figure out, what do I do with that? Is my salvation suddenly in jeopardy? If so, I should be afraid, and all these calls, don't be afraid, I've got you, you must be, all that stuff seems up in the air. See, God uses these warnings and threats to awaken his people and keep them on the narrow path to spur them forward towards himself, deeper into his heart, holding on to his promises. You, God, you alone can keep me in your kindness, can keep me humble, break me, help me. Jesus, don't let me go. And he uses these warnings as a means of fulfilling that golden chain of salvation. The final example I'll give, and, and then we're, we're done here, is just, uh, it comes from the, the letter written by Jude. Um, and this one perhaps is the, the clearest of all, the most unmistakable of all, because he just puts these two realities side by side as if we're supposed to know what to do with them. Unashamedly, unmistakably, just right there in front of us. So the book of Jude, uh, after he's kind of talking about these um, false teachers, and, and, and then he he's talks about kind of the coming judgment in things, he goes on in some ways to really kind of warn and exhort the saints, and he says this, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, ver- or I'm sorry, verse 21 now, keep yourselves in the love of God. Did you hear that? You've got to build yourself up in your most holy faith, pray fervently in the Holy Spirit, and keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Jude 20 and 21. And we look at that and go, oh my goodness. I mean, I have shed tears over that verse and this idea that somehow I have to keep myself in the love of God. I gotta try to build myself up and pray enough so that I keep myself in the love of God. That sounds intense. That sounds scary. That sounds like a reason to to tremble and, and, and worry even, right? Is it on me? Is it up to my studying of God's word and my praying to him to keep myself in his love? Is it on me? Well, as we've been seeing, kind of, yes. 
In one sense, yes. Our choices and our actions matter. The sovereignty of God doesn't mean that you get to just kind of go off and do your own thing. Oh, well, if he's gonna keep me, I don't need to pray and I don't need to build myself up in my, in my holy faith. I could just go do what I want. No, your choices and actions matter. And so he speaks it. But then another player comes into view. It's, it's amazing. When you keep reading the epistle just a couple verses later, this is how Jude closes everything out. And what we realize is that, man, he's gonna move from this call that we keep ourselves to this most glorious promise that God is, in fact, keeping us. Look at verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you. Did you hear that? Who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So the call for us to keep ourselves you want to know what I think one of the things God is trying to do with that? He's, he's, he's using that warning or that threat, if you will, kind of implicit in there, to drive us towards the only one who can truly keep us. When he says, listen, keep yourselves in the love of God, and we go, I don't know how to do it. God, and then we read and we go on and say, now to the one who can keep you. We say, that's how I do it. Keep me. You gotta do it, and you wanna know what happens? You start building yourself up in your holy faith, and you're fervent in prayer. Do you understand that God actually uses these warnings and threats and exhortations as a means of fulfilling his good purpose and plan for you and keeping you coming, pressing near. It's a way that he upholds his plan and his promise. It's not at the end of the day showing us or exposing the fact that his plan or promise is fragile and frail. So, can a few renegade sailors upend the plan and promise of God for you? No. No. What we see is that God is going to keep. God is going to be true. God will use these warnings. He will use these things in scripture. Let them have their, let them sit on you. Don't just discard and say it doesn't matter. Let them sit on you because it does matter. If the sailors get off, the ship does go down. But the warnings, let them have their way and let them drive you deeper to the promise. Let them drive you deeper to the God who is above, to the God who can keep, to the Savior who has set his hand on you and will bring to completion that which he has begun. So I end by saying this. Do not be afraid. God will fulfill his purpose for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we admit that there is much in your word beyond our comprehension. And yet I pray today there is enough that we comprehended here rightly 
that even now as we prayed and as I said at the beginning, we find there is a stability underneath us. We understand that our actions and our choices matter, but we understand also that you keep your children, that you guard your children, that you utilize circumstance and warning and, and promise and all sorts of things to keep them uh, moving forward, that you fulfill your good plans for them. We're standing on solid ground. That there's bedrock for believers. And as we, we owe it all to Jesus. So it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, with that, I would invite you guys to join me and others in the uh, after party. Uh, it'll be starting up momentarily. I'll be there uh, along with some of our other leaders and members. I would love to be able to pray, connect, maybe even sing a song or two with you. Uh, and uh, if I don't see you sooner, hope to see you next week. Bless you guys. Bye.